This is NFL.com's Coaches Show Podcast. 40 men together can't lose. This is why you lift all them weights. Everybody's grabbing out there. Nobody's got them. And now we're going. There's a gleam, men. There's a gleam. Welcome to Coach's Show. I'm Brian Billick. My partner, Steve Mariucci, is off this week. We'll reconnect next week in Arizona for Super Bowl 49. So I'm just going to kind of freelance today, talk a little bit about what was obviously an unbelievable weekend, or I should say an unbelievable game with the Seattle Seahawks beating the Green Bay Packers. Less so, obviously, with the Colts getting blown out by the Patriots. But as we want to do on the Coach's Show, let's break down particularly the Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers and and the much-talked-about some of the decisions that the coaches made. And as we do on this show, I don't want to focus necessarily on the outcome. I want to talk more a little bit about the thought process that goes through the coaches' minds. Obviously, at the end of the day, as we always say on this show, if it worked, you were right. If it didn't, you're the village idiot and can always be scrutinized. And today, Monday, after the game, Obviously, everybody's scrutinizing many of the decisions that Mike McCarthy made in the game. And let's kind of take them in order as we start out. Obviously, you could not have orchestrated a better start if you're a Green Bay Packer fan, given the way that the Seattle Seahawks kind of flopped around. The biggest question asking people are asking are when you had an opportunity inside the five-yard line, in two separate series, as Mike McCarthy and the Green Bay Packers did, to just settle for field goals. Now, on the road, playing a team as good a defense as the Seattle Seahawks, it's real easy to say, no, absolutely, at some point they should have gone for a touchdown. On the anticipation, obviously, that this was going to be a tough area to get down to, that it was going to be a relatively low-scoring game. And having said that, I think that that is probably correct. Uh, If I were in the same situation, I don't know if I'd have kicked both field goals. I might have done one just to get on the board. But the second time, I might have taken a shot at the touchdown, not knowing if I was going to be down there or not. Now, let's remember, that's in hindsight. That's easy for us to look and say the way Seattle flopped around in the first half to miss those opportunities. But Mike McCarthy doesn't know that. He didn't know that Seattle's offense was going to have this turnover fest in the way that they did. Uh, The one thing that you could second guess, or I should say agree with Mike McCarthy, as the game unfolded and as we get to the end of the game with obviously the botched onside kick return that they had had that worked had they indeed executed that properly you could actually go back and make a heck of a case that Mike McCarthy made the right decision in holding on to the points because indeed that was just enough for them to get the win on the road but typically those kind of conversations you have during the course of the week you don't tell you, you don't wait till you actually get to the game and say well what are we going to do if we need two points uh, early in the game to get a point separation or if we're going to need it at the end of the game to tie or win what if we have to get into a fourth down situation are we going to go for it on fourth down deep in the red zone because you have to consider the opponent you're playing Some would say on the road against a very good defense like the Seattle Seahawks, you have to maximize every opportunity. I'll be honest with you, when they went for the field goal on the second time, I texted my production assistant, Taylor Jones, and said, this is going to cost the Green Bay Packers the game. I felt like bypassing the chance to get a touchdown down in that situation to be that conservative could eventually cost them the game, but not in the way it actually uh, unfolded because Seattle obviously continued to struggle for three quarters or almost, you know, four quarters of the game. 
So certainly you could second-guess that. A lot of people will second-guess the conservative play calling. I will also say this about the goal line, and we've talked about it many, many times. When you're facing a team on goal line plays, that's plays inside the three, the two, or the one, defensively, you've got to sell out. You have to make the call clearly. I'm going to commit all 11 to stopping what I think is going to be a run, or I have to make a defensive call that prepares for the possibility of maybe a play-action pass. You can't do both. It's why when you sell out for the run and we see a play-action pass so often, and everybody runs the same play, they put somebody, usually a tight end, to the corner of the end zone. They put somebody in the flat, and you look up, and the guy is absolutely open, no one within 10 yards of him. We say, how can that happen? Because as a defense, you either sell out to stop the run or you anticipate a play-action pass. So it really does come down to the play caller, and you don't have a lot of information to draw your decisions on. So clearly Green Bay made the decision, we're going to pound this thing in. Seattle made the correct decision in terms of selling out all out to stop the run. If it had gone either way, if they had play-action passed, I guarantee you someone would have been wide open, but you don't know that until after the fact. So criticizing the actual play calling down on the goal line, most people would be interested to know at the end of the year the number of goal line plays you actually run inside the five-yard line in that situation are, are less than a couple dozen on an entire year. So you really don't have a lot of data to go back and look at your opponent and say, what do they do in these situations? It is literally a guessing game, and in this instance, Seattle guessed right, and Mike McCarthy and the Green Bay Packers probably guessed wrong. Uh, and as you move along during the game, obviously Seattle just could not get its bearing defensively. It was adequate. Uh, obviously, the interceptions that, the, that Russell Wilson threw, not all of his doing, some of the balls being tipped. But let's fast forward now to the end of the game. And, and, I, and not even the end of the game. Let's, get, uh, uh, let's talk about as we get into the third quarter. On the flip side of it, the score is 16 to nothing. There's 10 minutes and 53 seconds uh, to start the drive for the Seattle Seahawks. And as we all know, they drive the ball down. They get to a fourth and 10, and they end up running the fake field goal. That was quite a call by Pete Carroll. Again, let's size up the situation. They're down 16 nothing. Their offense has done nothing to this point. And the reason he went ahead and went for it, you could have settled for the three. Again, conventionally thinking, let's get points on the board. Let's just kind of stem the tide. But that would have left a 13-point differential, a two-score differential. Now, that's two-score being two touchdowns, obviously, and, uh, and, and, and giving you the opportunity to go ahead. By getting the seven points, now that, now that makes a nine-point differential. Yeah, it's still a two-score differential, but that's a touchdown and a field goal. And the way the game had been going and the lack of productivity by your offense, that, was, that would have been a huge and indeed was a huge difference for Seattle. So again, in this instance, uh, where he was obviously being a little more aggressive than Mike McCarthy with a fourth and 10 on the 19-yard line, obviously they felt it was something they could get. Green Bay obviously having a tough special teams day, as we would find out later in the day, uh, by not anticipating that that field goal, this might have been a position for just that. Uh, let's go to, to the onside kick, and let's talk about how something like that happens. And, and uh, the poor man Bostic, of course, is getting beat up on a regular basis. And the f- coach and me, it was very frustrating to watch because, and I wrote about it on NFL.com, that it's frustrating as a coach when you've got to know, when you're talking about better than, than 120 uh, 
uh, practices that you're going to have during the course of the season. Twice as many meetings. Uh, a large portion of that is always going to include special teams. Every special teams meeting that addresses onside kicks for every team since junior high to high school to major college to the NFL, on a, when you defense an onside kick, what you know is going to be an onside kick, with all the innovation that goes on in this league, one thing that doesn't change is how you prepare to defense an onside kick. The front line's job is always to take on the front line of defenders that are rushing down on the kickoff. You put your best hands people, as they did with Jordy Nelson, in the second level. Your front level is to take out those that are trying to blow up the kick, trying to blow up and uh, the, whoever catches the ball. Block across the board. You have one-on-one assignments across the board. And then you let a Jordy Nelson, who is very good at this, catch the ball, cover up, you take control, and it's inconceivable that at the two-minute mark that Seattle could have won the game if indeed uh, Green Bay would have maintained possession of the game. What made Bostic the fourth-string tight end? And keep in mind that the Green Bay back- Packers carry more tight ends and more linebackers than any team in the National Football League. And here's the reason why. Mike McCarthy and Ted Thompson very much believe they want that body type, that 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", 230 to 250 type body, 50 pound body type that plays tight end and linebacker. One, uh, one of the biggest reasons is so that you have depth on special teams with those types of athletes. They tend to be your best athletes. And again, Bostic is there. He's a young man, uh, undrafted free agent out of Newberry College. He's been in the league a couple years, hasn't played a whole lot. So his primary focus each week is on special teams. And I promise you, Coach Slocum, the special teams coach for the Green Bay Packers, had covered this a million times. Your job on the front line at 6'5", 250 pounds, is to take out the front line on rushing kickoff team. Let Jordy Nelson do his job. What possessed Bostic to peel out of that assignment and to think he could go up and get the ball? You can see why there was a frustration on the part of Mike Lombardi or Mike McCarthy and Coach Slocum, the special teams coach, because I've always said there's two types of players that can't do what I can't play for me. The one that can't do what he's told and the one that can only do what he's told. And in this situation, he needed to maintain what his responsibility was and let Jordy Nelson do his job. Going forward, and this is where I think the Seattle Seahawks separated themselves from the Green Bay Packers, because in that situation, you cannot think about the consequences of what are happening. You can't think about four and five plays ahead, or, oh my gosh, in the case of Green Bay, they played like a team that was thinking, oh my gosh, what happens if they go the length of the field? Oh my gosh, what happens if they go for two points? What are we going to do? You have got to take one play at a time, and even for... Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks, it can't be, okay, what are we going to do if we score? What are we going to do if we get the two points? That's for Pete Carroll to address. This team looked like a team that was very focused on, we're going to take this one play at a time. We're going to get the onside kick. And then we're going to run this play. And we're going to run the speed option. And then once they saw Russell Wilson in the in the uh, 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 touchdown for the touchdown after the read option, after faking the give to Marshawn Lynch. They knew exactly what two-point play they wanted to run. And the way they executed it, Green Bay looked shocked that they were going to go for two points. And the energy level, and you can understand it, they've just been hit in the gut. 
This game, they're going to the Super Bowl. If they recover an onside kick, which happens about 85% of the time, anytime there is an onside kick in that situation, they're going to the Super Bowl. So it was like a hit in the gut that they had found themselves in this situation, and they were shell-shocked. Remember a couple of years ago when the Denver Broncos had given up, uh, they were going to the Super Bowl, they were playing the Baltimore Ravens, the game was done, they gave up kind of a Hail Mary pass at the end of the game, they were in shock, they had an opportunity to drive down the field, but they took the knee three times because John Fox said at that point we were like a punch, uh, a, a punch drunk boxer, we were shell shocked, we needed to regroup. And, and then obviously got into the overtime and loss, and Baltimore went on to win the Super Bowl. Well, Green Bay was shell-shocked. They were that punch-drunk boxer. They were reeling. They didn't know what they were doing, as evidenced by the drive down the field and the two-point play. They regrouped themselves, obviously, to go down the field, which you give them great credit for. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, the great quarterback that he is, puts them in position, obviously, to get down the field and kick the field goal. Now, at that point, you can see there's any number of things that said, well, you wouldn't have been in that position. The field goal would have been the field goal to win the game if you had gone for a touchdown instead of a three-point uh, earlier on in the game. Now, in hindsight, those questions by Mike McCarthy earlier in the game are much more legitimate, but there's no way you could have spun the circumstances uh, going forward knowing that this late in the game, this was going to be uh, the events. And you've got to give Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers uh, great uh, – Great uh, points for, for rebounding, putting together a brilliant drive. They obviously have a great deal of faith in Cosby, and he had done a great, or Crosby, excuse me, uh, a great deal of faith in him, even in those circumstances, in Seattle, a swirling wind, a wet, heavier ball. Um, so you give him great, chance, uh, great credit for kind of rebounding to it. But then this is where the greatness of Russell Wilson, and this is something that even though he played very poorly and people are saying, well, he, almost, he kind of swallowed the olive in this situation, the drive that he put together, again now, particularly the last play, to go into zero coverage with nobody in the middle of the field, to not allow for the deep pass by Russell Wilson, who you know is capable of that. Under Russell Wilson, particularly when he has time to throw the ball, has been one of the more explosive teams to go zero safety and to try to put pressure on. You could certainly question that call by Dom Capers, which is in sharp contrast to the third and 12, where he rushed only three and let Russell Wilson convert on a third and long to lead to a touchdown drive later uh, in the game. Um, yeah, you can second-guess some of those calls as well, but obviously you take nothing away from the Seattle Seahawks and what they were able to do to orchestrate one of the great come-from-behind wins down by 12 in the fourth quarter. Pete Carroll doing a phenomenal job in keeping his team focused as a championship pedigree, and certainly Mike McCarthy and the Green Bay Packers. As Aaron Rodgers said after the game, um, this is one that's going to stick with you for a while because – they know better than anybody just how much has to go into you being in that championship game. goes all the way back to in the offseason, the acquisitions you make, the draft, the mind-numbing and, and fatiguing uh, uh, training camp that you go through, all the uh, preparation in the games and the ups and downs, the playoff run itself. To get in that situation and come up short, that doesn't go away very readily. Let's move on quickly to the Colts and the Patriots. Obviously less to talk about. Uh, the Patriots overwhelming the Indianapolis Colts. We had the question coming in, would they be able to run the ball on them the way they did 
in week 11 when they just literally manhandled them. People thought, rightfully so, the Indianapolis Colts were going to play better, play better defense. They couldn't on the road against the uh, New England Patriots. Bill Pelichick once again orchestrating a brilliant offensive and defensive game plan. Uh, you, can, you can't say enough about the championship pedigree, and that's why Bill Belichick now has more wins in the playoffs than any coach in the history of this league, surpassing Tom Landry, why he and uh, uh, Tom Brady are now going into their sixth Super Bowl together, again, unprecedented. Uh, going to be a fascinating matchup between the Patriots and the Seattle Seahawks. And here's the thing that interests me the most, and we'll talk more about this next week, obviously. But usually when we come to a playoff, or a Super Bowl, we're looking at two teams that uh, one or both teams, it's, well, how are they going to perform in the unique circumstance of the extra bye week, all the the different week that it is going to be down in Arizona, whether it's the head coach being there for the first time, the quarterback, the team as a whole, how are they going to change this change in schedule? How are they going to deal with it? You don't have that with these two teams. Seattle's coming off as reigning Super Bowl champs. They know exactly how these two, two weeks are to be orchestrated. New England, as we talked about, the, the powers that be at the top have been through this enough. They will handle it. This, this two-week period is going to be nothing if just about the game itself against two coaches that obviously have the pedigree as championship coaches. Uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating matchup, the chess match of what Seattle, who's pretty straightforward in what they do defensively. They don't do a lot defensively. And frankly, they don't do a lot offensively. They're fundamentally sound, and they stay stay true to their personality, where Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, you really don't know what you're getting from week to week offensively or defensively. It's going to be a fascinating matchup to see where we go with it. Uh, I, I don't uh, want to get away from this and, uh, without talking about uh, we're in the, all the coaches have virtually been hired. Now with the coaching changes that are available, only the Atlanta Falcons are left open. And even that, even though they haven't officially hired him, they're going for their second interview with Dan Quinn this week with the Seahawks, the defensive coordinator. I think what that really is is to sit down saying, look, this is your job. Who do you want us to go after to put your staff together? A little duplicitous, but the league kind of turns a blind eye to it because, as we knew, most of these coaches were going to be hired by this week. Why? Because this is the week everybody's down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl. This is where the coaches go down and are able to put their staffs together, and it's going to be a mad dash for coordinators and assistant coaches. Uh, Let's run down real quickly what has been done. Gary Kubiak is going to go to the Denver Broncos, uh, obviously for obvious reasons. John Elway and Kubiak very close to one another. Kubiak is a backup quarterback to Elway. Coach for there better than 10 years. This is exactly what um, John Elway had in mind when he let John Fox go. The question is, does Peyton Manning want to come back and indeed change his style of play? And I think that's what they're going to ask him to do in Denver under Gary Kubiak. John Fox, aforementioned, is going to go to the Chicago Bears, um, very close to the new general manager because of his relationship with New Orleans Saints and Sean Payton. That's how it works in this league right now. These two will work together. John Fox has got a bit of a challenge to him. That defense literally has to start from scratch on defense. And the question is, what's your quarterback situation? Does he believe in Jay Cutler or is he going to start there? Uh, Jim Tomasula taking over for the 49ers. Uh, Trent Belke, the new general man or the general manager there, got just what he want. He got a, a foot soldier that's been there before. Belke's in total charge of this, and he's got a guy that's not going to rock the boat and do exactly what Trent Belke tells him to do and hire exactly who Trent Belke tells him to hire. 
Rex Ryan, our man in, with the Buffalo Bills. And I give some of these teams great credit for reaching out. You look at the Buffalo Bills, fourth in total defense. You're thinking, well, why do they need Rex Ryan, a defensive master up there, when they're that good on defense? Because they just hired a good head coach. They believe in his th- enthusiasm, uh, and, and that's why they went ahead and hired him, even though you, conventional thinking says maybe they would hire an offensive guy. Jack Del Rio was going to the Oakland Raiders, again, a former head coach with defensive expertise. He's coming into a very interesting job because it looks like they've got their quarterback situation set with Derek Carr, Jack Del Rio with a second go-around. I think he'll do an excellent job. Todd Bowles, the excellent defensive coordinator, uh, is going to go from the Cardinals, obviously. Uh, is, is found an excellent job with the New York Jets. There again, you would think as good as they are defensively, why did you hire a defensive guy? But I give the Jets credit, just like the Bills. They went out and hired what they thought will be the best head coach, not just some offensive or defensive d- guru. And in terms of Seattle, there again, you can, uh, you can look at it. Um, and this one kind of makes sense. Dan Quinn, kind of a very much a, 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 a similar to Gus Bradley, the Jacksonville Jaguars coach that came from Seattle. Excellent defensive mind. Falcons obviously think they need a defensive coach, although I will question that because as good as I think Dan Quinn is, and he's outstanding, uh, I've coached a lot of good uh, defensive coaches. I've been with some good ones. Tony Dungy, obviously. Uh, I've been with Rex Ryan. I've been with Jack Del Rio, Marvin Lewis. Mike Smith and Mike Nolan, who were on my staffs before, are as good as any defensive coaches in this league, and no disrespect to Dan Quinn. They're equally as good. Dan Quinn's going to have to go in and make sure if you're going to be better, it's not going to be because of scheme. You better get some defensive personal, uh, personality there and some defensive personnel because Thomas Dimitrov has left that cupboard absolutely bare. So, interesting weeks as we go forward. Hope you'd enjoy this uh, kind of monologue. I hope you didn't get tired of me just droning on. Obviously, this bye week is always interesting. Uh, we'll crank it up next week as we get ready for some great insight going into Super Bowl 49 where the Seattle Seahawks will take on the New England Patriots. Also, make sure to check me on Friday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Playbook Primetime, where I join Sean O'Hare and Sterling Sharp. We'll break down everything about this Super Bowl. You don't want to miss it.